Hey everyone, this is Caleb and welcome to the Learner's Corner Podcast. I am so grateful that you have decided to spend part of your day here with me in the Learner's Corner. And today I am honored to be joined by Curtis Chang to talk with him about his brand new book, The Anxiety Opportunity, How Worry is the Doorway to Your Best Self. Love this, love this book. I feel like recently I have been going on a a string of, wow, that's one of the best books that I've read in a while. And this is one of the best books (laughs) that I've read at at some point, you know, towards, uh, towards the end of the year. You know, I guess I'll, I'll need to do a list or something like that. That has uh, been great, but this is another uh, great book as well. Now, if you've been listening to the podcast for a while or whether or not you're a new listener, if you find yourself on this lifelong learning journey, please subscribe to my Substack, to where I just give bunches of recommendations of all the different great things that I am learning from, whether that be podcasts or books or movies or music or quotes, or really just anything that I'm thinking about that I think is worth sharing. And again, you can subscribe there and you'll get all of my best recommendations. Now, whenever I first found out about this book, you know, I I listened to Curtis on the Good Faith podcast. I think I might've recommended it a few times before as well and so whenever i saw this uh book coming out i knew that i wanted to talk with curtis about i love learning about anxiety and one of the things that i really appreciate about him is just the 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 nuanced and and the in the fresh different perspective that uh that you find in the book so let me tell you a little bit about curtis and we're gonna jump right into the conversation Curtis Chang is a theologian and consulting faculty member of Duke Divinity School and a senior fellow at Fuller Theological Seminary. He has written for the New York Times and Christianity Today and has appeared on CNN, CBS, ABC, NBC, PBS, and NPR's All Things Considered. He is also the host of the Good Faith Podcast, a leading podcast that helps Christians make sense of the wider world. His ministry speaking and writing are fueled by a passion to help Christians recognize the surprising authority and relevance of Jesus for parts of their lives that are often left to the secular world. And now, without any further wait, here is our conversation. Curtis, it is so good to have you on the podcast today. It's great to be here, Caleb. Thank you for having me. Yeah. And, you know, just as we're getting started, you know, you've written this book, The Anxiety Opportunity, and I think it might be uh, good to just kind of jump in with your experience with anxiety and, you know, as as a pastor and kind of what led you to write this book. Yeah. So I wrote this book, which is called, like you said, The Anxiety Opportunity, uh, because I am somebody that has suffered from anxiety uh, for all of my life. And um, in particular, I had a very devastating experience of anxiety when I was the senior pastor of a evangelical covenant church out here in California. And uh, it was a, it was a devastating experience. I uh, basically suffered from a great deal of anxiety over how the church was doing, uh, over how I was doing. But I didn't know it. I didn't name it as anxiety at the time. And it ended up 
creeping up on me in the form of insomnia, which is, which is, you know, anxiety shows up in our bodies in different ways. And I went through a two week period where I did not sleep at all, at least consciously, uh, because of, of my anxiety. And that ultimately led to a, a complete breakdown. You just can't function very well mm -hmm. uh, with something like that and ended my pastoral career. So if there's somebody, I think, um, that can say, you know, I, anxiety is a horrible, horrible problem. I think I at least qualify in the ballpark as somebody who can, <laughs> who can say that. Um, and yet I write the book called the anxiety opportunity because it has been my experience and also my conviction from scripture that anxiety is not just a problem. It, it certainly has problematic aspects, but it is not just a problem. In fact, it is actually the most, one of the most profound opportunities for spiritual growth. And it's actually when we treat anxiety only as a problem, that's when we are most likely to make it be a devastating problem. And a lot of the reasons in reflection about why I got into this sort of, you know, devastating experience of anxiety was because as a pastor, I had internalized a lot of the Christian teaching, especially popular in evangelical circles, the teaching about anxiety that just treats it as a problem to make a go away. And that paradoxically actually makes anxiety worse, which we can talk about. But, uh, yeah. but, but it, so I wrote the book because I wanted to help others who are struggling with anxiety, both struggling with anxiety and struggling with the misconception uh, and the, and the wrong teaching about anxiety that so pervades the church. Mm -hmm. I, I want to go back to what you mentioned uh, whenever you were a pastor, you said you didn't recognize it as anxiety. What did you think it was? I, you know, and this is the thing that we, because anxiety is viewed as a problem, uh, as a spiritual problem, if in some circles, even as sin or as lack of faith, um, I felt like I couldn't confess a name and recognize and face mm. the reality that I had anxiety because that would have been like confessing like I was sinning, I was a failure. And as a senior pastor, you know, we just have a lot of, mm -hmm. a lot of barriers to, to admitting that and a lot of shame yeah. then. Uh, and so because of so much, so much shame that pervades anxiety, I narrated it as workload, as stress, as a lot on my plate, you know, mm -hmm. um, and, you know, all these other ways we talk about it. Uh, but one of the things that when you do that is you external, it's like deflecting the reality of what it really is. It's like, it's something external. It's out there. It's workload. It's mm -hmm. stress. It's, you know, a lot of things on my plate, right? It's not actually... I'm not describing it and facing it as an internal reality. It's something that's happening inside me. And because of that, we then actually miss the spiritual opportunity because the spiritual opportunity of anxiety is precisely to meet Jesus in our anxiety. It's to actually have Jesus encounter us and us to encounter Jesus in the anxiety. And so if we're running away from anxiety, if we're denying it, if we're pushing it outside, we're running away, we're denying, we're pushing away the very meeting ground, the very meeting place mm -hmm. for us with Jesus in, in our anxiety. Um, mm. Yeah, I, I want to go back to what you mentioned, that we do we can have a tendency to view anxiety as a problem. Um, what what are some of the, what's some of the bad theology or like the bad ideas around anxiety that you just see are, yeah. are prevalent? I would say there's two main ways that Christians tend to have been taught and tend to 
think about anxiety uh, and both are treating it anxiety as a problem. So, so the fundamental problem is, is that we view it as a problem to make go away. Mm -hmm. Right. And, um, and we, our response then, once we've been, been mistaught that anxiety is a problem, we sort of have two main ways we respond to the problem. And I call this one, we either pray it away or we prescribe it away. Prayed away or prescribed it away. And so the prayed away is where we have been mistaught that it's a spiritual problem and therefore we need to spiritually push it away. Pray it away, um, meditate on scripture, have just have enough faith, uh, a misapplication of Philippians 4, 6 that somehow we interpret, you know, Paul's words there to be just like, I should just be out of sheer willpower, not be be able to be not anxious, right? And there's something wrong with me if I can't just not be anxious. So I therefore should be praying harder. So that's the pray anxiety away. Some churches don't go that far, but they will then still view it as a problem, but it's just something we outsource to secular mental health to deal with. And this is the prescribe it away prescribing either medication or therapy. And let me be clear, I am a fan of therapy and medication. I've taken both. I think there's mm -hmm. a value in that to help bring the physical symptoms of anxiety down to manageable levels. But what the prescribe it away approach misses is the spiritual opportunity, is the, is the invitation to actually go through anxiety to, to view it as a doorway that we're supposed to go through to or in order to meet Jesus and allow him to take us to the growth that lies on the other side of it. Like spirit, that's not secular mental health is not set up for a spiritual opportunity of yeah. growth, right? That their job is to just get the symptoms down. And so while that's helpful, it misses the misses the opportunity for spiritual growth. Mm -hmm. You know, another thing that you uh I think briefly touched about in the book because you talk about high functioning anxiety, which is uh, just not something that we typically think about whenever we think about anxiety. Can you talk about high functioning yes. anxiety and kind of what that looked like in your life? Yeah. So this is another reason why I missed uh, the reality that I was an anxious person. I, I narrated it differently because uh, in reality, and I write about this in my book, I have a lot of uh, stories from my own childhood that actually when I reflect on it, like, wow, I was an anxious kid, you know? But I didn't call myself that, and no one really viewed me that way because I had what, what psychologists call highly functional anxiety. So highly functional anxiety is behaviors that are actually fueled by deep sort of unaddressed anxiety, but we've just channeled them into behaviors that in the world's eye make it look like you're actually getting ahead, you're being successful, you're on top of things. So for me, my highly functional anxiety was things like making contingency plans, always anticipating, being hyper-organized, oops, sorry, uh, checking up on things uh, constantly. And, uh, you know, that that's that can be functional in certain ways. But the problem with highly functional anxiety is if you don't actually face and deal with the underlying anxiety and you're just making it go away through all these highly functional behaviors, at some point, it's quite possible those highly functional behaviors end up being dysfunctional. And that's really, you know, my breakdown, my catastrophic breakdown is really a classic example of it where all of the, my functional patterns of, let me think over this, let me figure out a way, um, ended up getting me trapped in rumination and sleeplessness uh, such that those, you know, superficially functional behaviors 
ended up being catastrophically dysfunctional. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I, I want to spend so much of our conversation on the opportunity because I feel like you, you, at least for me going through the book, you spent a lot, like it was just very enlightening to me and very perspective shifting in it. One of the things I, I kind of want to touch on is uh, how do you notice whenever anxiety is building yeah. in your life or how can we notice? Because just as you said, anxiety can be very tricky. We don't always see it for what it is. Yeah, that's a great question. So in my book, I lay out a lot of different ways in which uh, anxiety shows up in our body, in our mind, and in our relationships. And mm-hmm. uh, we do have to pay attention because sometimes we can, just like I did, uh, like narrate it on all three of those levels as something else other than anxiety. Um, I think for me, I, the the part of the book that I really enjoyed writing about was how it shows up in our relationships, because this is where we're especially prone to mischaracterizing anxiety as something else, especially ex- as something that we blame others for, uh, rather than realizing, oh, actually what's going on here is I'm anxious. We tend to, because there's that so much shame attached to that typical thing that happens with shame is we don't want to feel ashamed. So we externalize it into blame, into external blame. And so what I found in my own life is a lot of the times in my, for instance, in my own marriage, uh, a lot of my conflicts with my wife are driven because actually one or both of us are actually feeling anxious, but we're responding to it in different ways, sometimes often by externally blaming the other you know, mm-hmm. or something. And um, so that's, that would be an example, but there are ways in which in our body, things like sleeplessness, tightness of breath, gastrointestinal disorders, um, body aches. I mean, there's a wide range in w- w- physical ways in which anxiety shows up in the body. And then in our mind, um, rumination is a classic way in which anxiety shows up. So rumination is turning a thought or a situation over and over and over in our minds. Uh, until it gets until we're stuck with it, we're, we're it gets sticky. I thought we can't shake it because we're we're caught in this loop of rumination, just turning a problem over and over again. And rumination for me is really enlightening to to realize mm-hmm. because at, at, on the surface it can seem like oh no, I'm just trying to solve this problem. I'm just trying to think my way through it. And then you realize if you actually look at it, it's like, I'm no, I'm just actually turning it over and over and over my head. I'm actually addicted to this thought pattern. It's not productive. Um, and no. what's really happening is that we're trying to deal with anxiety by making it go away by thinking, if I just think hard, enough hard about it, I'll no. find that one thing that will make this you know anxious situation go away. Mm-hmm. What helps you know if you're, because part of it is, you do want to think through problems. How do you know whenever it's turned from being productive thinking and ruminate or not ruminate on something? How, how do you how do you know that it's turned from productive thinking yeah. about something to ruminating on something? The key tell is addiction. That's always the mm-hmm. key tell. Um, is mm-hmm. when you find you cannot stop thinking about it. Uh, mm-hmm. You know that's always the key tell because if you know if you can think about it and like okay I'm done thinking about it I I I've, I can't solve it I can't figure it out or I have figured out at least what I'm going to do and now I stop that's that's probably just productive you're just trying to mm-hmm. deal with the situation but if you find that you can't stop that the thought actually has got a, a grip on you versus the other way around uh, that's mm-hmm. a key sign that actually what's happening is you are furiously trying to make uh, some loss uh, go away. And, and that's the key here thing. Another key to realize is that anxiety 
the the existential heart of anxiety is it is about loss. Our anxiety is always about some loss we fear in the future. And rumination, then what happens is we want to make that possibility of loss go away. But because we can't make loss ever go away entirely, the possibility of loss go away, which is why we can't make anxiety go away. Yeah. Because, uh, and, and so as a result, we, we get caught in a hamster wheel. We are trying to make something impossible possible by thinking, if I just think about this hard enough, that possibility of loss will go away. But we turn it over, but we, but it, and we think one more turn, one more turn of my mind will discover that solution. It never comes. So we just get caught and addicted and stuck in turning that thought over and over in our minds. Um, and by the way, uh, Caleb, this is yeah. this understanding that anxiety is this fear of future loss. That's really at the heart of why I'm trying. I it's, I think it's so important for Christians to realize that anxiety is normal and not a problem to go away. Because if we recognize that anxiety equals loss, and that's, you know, and, and Jesus teaches about this on the Sermon on the Mount. Like this is, he's, he's saying, why are you so anxious? You're anxious because you're, you're, you're afraid you're going to lose what you have to eat, drink, or wear, right? Um, so anxiety yeah. equals loss. So if we believe and tell others that anxiety is a problem that you should be able to pray away, for instance, what we're telling them is that loss is something you should be able to make go away in your life. Mm -hmm. And this just feeds into the Christian distortion, distortion of true Christian teaching, which is that somehow God exists as a cosmic insurance broker in the sky. That's whose you know, purpose in our, for our lives is to ensure that we never suffer loss, right? That, that mm. And that is a pervasive belief, certainly in, in like the prosperity gospel. But I think, you know, mm -hmm. all, in, in all Christian streams, we are prone to slipping into this, this notion that somehow God is supposed to actually make, arrange our lives so that we don't experience loss. And, and that's, that's a false teaching. It's false to anybody who's lived and, and lived thoughtfully and realized like, no, actually I've been a Christian for, you know, 40 years and I've experienced a lot of loss in my life. Yeah. So, right. Um, and it's not true to scripture. God has never promised that he exists to ensure that we will never experience loss in this life. And, and the life of Jesus should be the most, you know, sort of a clear example of of the life that that of a life that experienced deep loss, right? Loss mm. of his of everything on the cross. And so this is why having a correct, having letting God correct our spiritual understandings through anxiety is such this in, in, incredible opportunity because because anxiety is so much about loss, it's an opportunity for God to correct our deep-seated misconceptions about about loss. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that that brings to mind one of one of the biggest takeaways for me in the book is you talk about the anxiety for, formula, yeah. which is loss times avoidance. Yeah. We've we've talked about the loss and we've you've alluded to the avoidance piece of it. Can you talk about avoidance and how that contributes yeah. to our anxiety? Yeah. So the formula that I sort of explicate in the book is uh, anxiety equals loss times avoidance, and because um, because anxiety is about loss, what that formula should tell us is we can't actually ever fully get rid of anxiety, right? Because, because we can't ever fully get rid of loss in our life. 
So anxiety equals loss, that first part of the formula tells us we're going to experience some anxiety. And so uh, rather than pushing it away and thinking like somehow it's a sin or I've got to make it, I've got to pray it away or prescribe it away. It's more like, no, I've got to figure out how God intends for me to actually experience this loss. Now, the second part of the formula, anxiety equals loss times avoidance, comes in when we refuse to actually let God take us through loss, but instead furiously go after some method of avoiding loss. And the reason why this is this is a multiplier effect to anxiety is because we because we can't ever fully get rid of of loss. When we engage in avoidance, and by avoidance, I mean things like rumination or things like denial or things like, you know, uh, and I, my book talks about a bunch of other ways in which we engage in these sort of avoidance um, moves. Um, what we're doing is we're trying to avoid the unavoidable. Uh, so the, the when we try to avoid the unavoidable, that just generates anxious energy because we're just, this is what creates the addiction loops, right? We're just doing something that we think if I just, you know, it's like taking a shot. It's like taking uh, some drug, like, oh, if I just get one more hit, then I'll be feel okay. And then it might give you a temporary false relief, but it it's it doesn't actually, you know, enable you to avoid what you're trying to avoid. So you have to go for the next hit. And that's what these avoidance moves are, is they just are multiplying our actual anxiety. And so there's this sort of, to me, just fascinating paradox with anxiety, which is that the moment we are willing to actually endure anxiety, because it means enduring loss and not try to avoid it, we actually can reduce the levels of anxiety in our life. Hmm. Yeah, I want to go back to Back to something that you were talking about earlier that made me think, you know, you were talking about the prosperity gospel and that in itself is an avoidance Absolutely. strategy yeah. as well. Are there anything, because uh, there, there's just such a strong tendency for us, I think, to, to spiritualize our avoidance. Yeah. What are some of the other forms of spiritualizing avoidance that you've seen? Wow. Um, well, I think prosperity gospel is one. I think a lot of what I have experienced in settings that talk about uh, that experience about healing, um, healing prayer, which I really believe in, but I, mm -hmm. I have experienced that a lot. Oftentimes those settings are filled with a lot of anxiety. Um, mm -hmm. Understandably so, because somebody is sick, somebody is diseased. And then a lot of times with it could lead to some spiritual distortions where people claim much greater certainty than actually is is warranted like god will heal you and god will you know so you know uh, uh or i've heard a word of knowledge that mm -hmm. i think can actually get, end up a lot of it is being distorted by actual anxiety and the people desire for some certainty in in life that is going to guarantee us away from avo uh, avoiding uh, some loss uh so yeah i i think there's i think that'd be another example um you know, one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about is just, you know, the, the prevalence of conspiracy theories that are present in, mm -hmm. in uh, among evangelicals. You can't really understand conspiracy theories unless you understand anxiety. And, uh, cons mm -hmm. Anxiety and conspiracy theories are deeply interwoven. And usually what a conspiracy theory is, it preys on some existing anxiety and tells people, you know, you don't need to be anxious because here's what's actually happening. And this is going to happen. Like QAnon is a classic example of this, uh, which is a conspiracy theory that tells people, here's what's really happening. And here's why it, you're gonna, it's, everything's going to be okay. And um, because, you know, Trump is going to return by power by a certain date. 
And you find people are get addicted to these conspiracy theories because that's how the, it's like a drug that they're taking to deal with their underlying anxiety. You know, one of the other ideas that you talk about is spiritual bypassing mm -hmm. as well. Can you talk about that and kind of unpack what that looks yeah, like? Yeah, spiritually bypassing the growth really happens, I think, in especially in the prescribed anxiety way when people are just... Mm -hmm going to secular mental health and saying, just make this problem go away. And, you know, mm -hmm. some of the medications, some of the therapy are helpful and can help manage your anxiety levels, but they're not the same thing as spiritual growth. And the example, the biblical analogy I use of this is the Jesus and he, when he heals the leper and he tells him to the leper, go present yourself to the priest for certification of your healing. It's part of the next, his spiritual restoration to the spiritual community of Israel. The leper, once he's gotten the physical healing, skips that step. He bypasses that 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 growth step, that spiritual growth step that Jesus had prescribed. And I think it's quite that's a good that's a good story that I think uh, is a is a sober warning for any of us, especially followers of Jesus, that are just going down the road of I just just make this problem go away and not paying attention, you know, this, this medical products, the medical aspects of this problem, and therefore bypassing the spiritual growth that uh, is offered to us. Mm -hmm. You know, I think another thing for me that uh, was just really informative for me is you talk about the different approaches to loss that were present during the time of Jesus and stoicism, Epic Epicureanism, I think, mm -hmm. and then uh, Platoism. Mm -hmm. Would you mind kind of unpacking each of those and kind of what they look like and what they even look like today. Yeah. Well, the critical thing here is that, again, because anxiety equals loss, uh, really the opportunity for us in anxiety is to clarify, wait, what is God's promise about loss? Mm -hmm. um, because if it isn't that we can make loss go away in our lives, what is it? And in presenting what I what what is the the Jesus centric answer to that question, like what is God's response to loss, I contrast it to what were the prevailing responses to loss in Jesus' day. So, uh, Epicureanism would be to say, uh, "Hey, you're going to lose things in life. Just smell the roses while you can. Enjoy life as much as you can, because you are going to." You are going to experience loss. In fact, you're going to experience the loss of all losses, which is death, right? Death is when we lose everything. So Epicurean says, you're going to die. So before you die, smell the roses, you know, uh, enjoy pleasure as much as you can. Uh, because when you die, your body's just going to be pushing up the daisies, right? So mm -hmm. uh, Stoicism basically says, you know, you're going to die. Your body's going to be decomposing and pushing up the daisies also. But rather than enjoying pleasure, what Stoicism says is do good, do good, mm -hmm. right? So maximize your moral good. And oftentimes that moral good is doing good for others. So you might characterize this as rather than not like Epicureanism, which is, you know, smell the daisies while you can, smell the roses while you can. It's like give flowers to other people, be kind, be generous, you know, be, be so forth. But in the end, you're going to still die. So just you know, be as good as you can before you die. Mm -hmm. Platonism uh, is this belief that like, you know, loss, this death thing, that's not real because actually what what is real is your 
soul, your disembodied non-physical soul. So when you die, your soul is going to float away to the ideal realm and it's going to exist as a disembodied soul. And that's what eternity is. And that's what true reality is. So don't worry about any of this loss of what you will eat, what you will drink and what you will wear and so forth. The curious thing about that is that um, many Christians have mistakenly allowed the platonic view of loss to actually distort the Christian view of loss. They've we've bought into this notion that how somehow God's response is we will go away to heaven in a disembodied soul. And that's why we should not worry about all the losses in our lives because all of it's going to burn, all of it's going to go away and so forth. That's actually not the, the true gospel uh, message, but we've allowed Platonism to distort that. And so what all of this sets up is, is the beautiful, radical, life-changing promise found in Jesus, which is that is the resurrection. It is the death mm -hmm. and resurrection, which is that no loss is is going to happen, just like the Stoics and the the uh, Epicureans realize. But it's not final. It's not final. Mm -hmm. There is a restoration on the other side. There is resurrection, the resurrection that first Jesus experienced and now makes available to all who follow him and call on his name, which means that we can go through loss, not not avoid it, not go around it, but go mm -hmm. through it, endure it, just like Jesus endured his loss of all losses on the cross because we believe and hope that we will participate in the restoration of all of our losses when Jesus finally comes to restore us from our own death and, and loss and, and gives us our new bodies. Now, that is a very different promise than the platonic distortion of Christianity, which says, no, no, you'll just float away and all of these bodily things that you fear losing, it'll just all burn, so don't, don't worry. That's, and partly our, it's really important for us to realize this because I actually think that platonic distortion of Christianity that that gives us this picture that will be disembodied souls floating away in heaven, that actually does not actually address our deepest anxieties because it doesn't actually have a robust answer to our loss. Like, wait, what's going to happen then to all these things and experiences and people that I fear I will lose, right? So this is why I, I think is in some ways is the most profound opportunity in anxiety is to reground us in the resurrection as God's decisive answer to loss and therefore to anxiety in our life. And that's the distinctive Christian vision for anxiety. I mean, a lot of the things I write about in the book of practices like getting mm -hmm. present, mindful breathing, uh, you know, I, I, a lot of what I talk about uh, that is rooted in scripture, but a lot of other uh, secular or other religious practices share in things like my, you know, mindful breathing and physical mm -hmm. getting in touch with our bodies and so forth. Only Christianity, only the gospel has a promise of restoration of loss through resurrection. So the resurrection is the distinctive heart of the Christian response to anxiety. And my book ultimately is driving people towards that. I think really life changing truth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I remember whenever I, you know, I was I was reviewing it today, just preparing for our conversation, and I was reading it for the first time a few days ago, and that's not necessarily a new idea, but I'll tell you what, like every time that I think about it, it just makes me emotional. Of course, yeah. thinking about it because you think of, uh, like I just think of my own losses yeah. as well, 
and like you think about gaining them back and like the other thing that i would love for you to touch on and like this is like it was so motivating to me and just again thank you so much for just writing about this is you talk about bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth Mm. And it just made me think about, like, we know that one day that this restoration is going to happen. And so, like, why not start right yeah. now? Absolutely. Absolutely. And and it, it enables us to actually experience the losses that we will go through just as regular human beings. That's inevitable in our mm-hmm. life. But especially as Christians seeking Jesus' kingdom— uh, we're going to experience losses along the way of that. It's not we are not promised like from one victory to another um, in, in in life and especially in our life endeavors that are related to the kingdom. But we can go through those losses with great hope because we believe this is not the end. Uh, loss will not have the final say. Death will not have the final say. Resurrection does. And um, and uh, yeah, I I have found the more I have leaned into. And recognize that that is the Jesus answer to anxiety. Uh, that's what enables me to actually hold the losses. And I and I, I write about this in the book is that the the promise of the resurrection it opens up a new formula. We're not just trapped in the anxiety equals loss times avoidance formula. We're opened up into this new formula, which I call anxiety equals loss divided by holding. By, and by that, I mean underneath, so you think of the divided, you know, divided line, right? Underneath the loss, which is real, which isn't going away. We can hold that loss with the promise of the resurrection. Hmm. Yeah. You know, one of the things I would love for you to elaborate on, and you kind of, you kind of allude it, but you kind of, um, you pose the challenge and then you just say, Hey, I want, I would love for your, you know, church leaders specifically to wrestle through yeah. what this looks like and that it's, that and that is our responsibility yeah. to do that as well. I'd love to just kind of, you know, tease, maybe you tease out a little bit of kind of like what you think about for, for your own personal life and your own um, leadership as well, of like what that stewardship looks like. Yeah. Well, so interestingly, um, the origins of this book, Caleb, came in, in the midst of the pandemic, the first month of the pandemic, when mm-hmm. uh, it was clear to me that so many people in my church uh, in my, and in my secular consulting practice, we're anxious. And one of the key um, ways in which anxiety grows in us is when we feel like we uh, have no one to hold it with, to hold that experience with. We're alone in our anxiety. And and that happens because we're both either ashamed of our anxiety or just anxiety has a way to just kind of take us ever further into our own thoughts and it's isolating. It's disconnected from us, from other people. Mm -hmm. And it actually multiplies anxiety. The more we are not with others because we were meant to actually hold anxiety first and foremost in the promise of the resurrection, but, but secondarily in that with other people, with other people, especially who share that hope. The challenge I think for Christian leaders, for pastors, ministry leaders, and so forth is how do we actually equip our people to hold their anxiety together because that is one of the great, amazing potentials for the church as a response to anxiety in this very anxious and lonely age is that we have structures. We have structures where people gather together, small groups, Bible studies, prayer groups, men's groups, women's groups, stuff like that. 
we have more than any other social structure in in our society in this you know age when so many of our institutions have been hollowed out the church really still has these structures where we gather together in small group communities the problem is we haven't given them a good way for them to actually hold their anxiety uh, with each other, right? And because because of this, especially because of this misplaced narrative that anxiety is a problem. Well, if it's a problem, then it's like, no, who wants to admit I'm anxious and how do you bring it in front of other people and so forth? And so um, I'm really challenging and inviting uh, pastors and followers, how do we more consciously equip our small groups to be able to actually hold each other in our anxiety? Because you can't assume just because people, small groups are meeting together, that they're actually holding their anxiety. I mean, I look, I've been mm -hmm. on a ton of small groups, and it's very easy to be in a small group and not be actually true and genuine with actually the deep anxieties in your life, right? And that it almost lends to a more of a sense of falseness because you're not really, you're with other people, but you're not being genuine with other people, right? Um, mm -hmm. And so I think a great challenge for us in this moment is how do we, how do we do that? And I wrote the book partly to help maybe provide as a resource for small groups to go through the book together, to read it together, to discuss mm -hmm. it together. Uh, and then we actually have a course at Redeeming Babel, which is the organization I lead. Uh, that's a video course. That's a good follow on to the book itself. If you wanted to go through it uh, as in a video course format as well. Mm -hmm. Talk to me about helping other people hold their anxiety, because I even think of, you know, there there is that in terms of a leadership structure, but I even think about that in terms of what you were talking about earlier um, with your wife or even with personal conflicts yeah. as well. Talk to me about like what it looks like to help somebody learn to hold their yeah. anxiety. Well, let me, I'll give you two examples of that. One about yeah. anxiety in the world and two, mm -hmm. second about anxiety in the family. So yeah. anxiety in the world, the, like, the world feels like an anxious place right now, right? There's a lot of losses happening in Ukraine, in our present, upcoming presidential elections, in race relations, in the economy, so forth. That's going to naturally create anxiety, especially if we have no way to make sense of these things happening in the world. So one way is, is to actually get help in making sense of the world, uh, especially by Christians who are trying to think about the world through a real Jesus-centric view. So this is the reason for my podcast. It's a good yeah. faith podcast uh, that I think, uh, Caleb, it was great to hear that you're yeah. a listener uh, of it. Yep. And um, the, every week we convene with friends, thoughtful, smart friends like David French and David Brooks, Pete Weiner, Ann Snyder Brooks, uh, Dan Allender. Like these are all my friends. And I gather them together every week to help people make sense of the world because that's how, because we're living in an anxious age where the world feels like it is filled with anxiety. And so it's, it's our way to help each other and gather people around a way to make sense of the world rather than just kind of get sucked into our anxiety. So that's one way mm -hmm. that we can hold our anxieties, hold our potential losses in the world. Now, the other thing that's even more, I think, uh, prevalent is how much anxiety is happening in families. So the CDC has reported, we're in the middle of a, a, a absolute pandemic of anxiety, especially among youth, among adults as well, but especially among youth, especially among girls. Uh, the latest CDC reports show that 60% of girls 
uh, are suffering from severe anxiety or depression of some form. 30% apparently have considered suicidal thoughts in response to their anxiety and depression. Uh, that's just a, that's just a catastrophic level of anxiety. What that means is behind every single one of those teenagers that's experiencing anxiety or its cousin depression uh, is a parent or two parents. Um, and one, and so the challenge of teen anxiety is also a challenge of parental anxiety, because as a parent, I can tell you when my kids are anxious, I'm anxious. And mm -hmm. so what does it mean then for us as parents, rather than to contribute to the anxiety by injecting into the family system, our own anxiety, which is often what I'm tempted to do when my kids are anxious is I, I, I inject my own anxiety. And the way I do that is by switching into problem solving mode, what I call consultant dad, where I'm just like, let me go in there and solve all of your underlying problems. Um, and what's actually happening is I'm injecting my own anxiety into the system, right? Um, how then, rather than doing that or whatever your version of that as a parent could be nagging, nagging mom, if it's not consultant dad or you know, whatever, um, is, uh, is how do we hold, how do we be that other person that's actually holding our children and holding their losses that they are either going through or they're afraid of going through rather than trying to make them go away through some problem solving consultant dad or nagging mom is, you know, and I don't mean to gender stereotype. It could easily be nagging mm -hmm. dad and consultant mom. Yeah. Right. Um, uh, but how do we be, uh, parents that actually hold our kids through this very, very tender moment. And I, I have a whole, whole chapters in my book that's trying to speak just to parental anxiety, because I think that is a pervasive phenomenon that's underneath the more publicized phenomenon of teen anxiety. Mm -hmm. So when that happens, are you just asking questions and listening or what does that look like for you? Yeah, a lot of it is making space and making room for their own experience of loss rather than mm -hmm. trying to like problem solve it away is is I find myself saying things like, I'm sorry, that sounds hard. Um, that sounds I can understand why you're feeling so a lot of it's sympathy, it's empathy, it's it's touch, it's it's being it's embraces, it's pats, it's reassurance, it's being around them physically, physical presence um is is so important to know that they're not getting abandoned they're not you know and of course with teens you've got to navigate the delicate balance sometimes they want your presence sometimes they don't you know so taking getting cues about that um and then you know gently appropriately together looking at the underlying loss that they're they're, that they're afraid of and trying to be like co-participants in them in in taking that to jesus you know the the other thing that you alluded to in, uh, in your answer to to understanding the world more is it made me think about the idea that you talk about with naming yeah. things as well and what naming allows to do. Can you talk about that and what that empowers us to do as it regards our anxiety? Yeah, I write in the book a lot about this practice of naming, this ability, because, and it's so powerful for a number of uh, ways. One, it, 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 it kind of takes us to actually look at our loss, our fear of loss that's behind our anxiety and actually name it. So rather than trying to avoid it, to think it away or to run away from it mentally or flee from it, it's actually looking at it and saying, oh, that's the loss. That's the loss. And really getting underneath it because sometimes um, the loss 
is actually deep. It's, it takes some digging for us to actually name, oh, this is really what I'm afraid of. You know, I'm really, uh, I, I was anxious about, you know, uh, this one event that where I thought I might've said something wrong. And I was like, oh, maybe I'm afraid of like, I said something wrong. I hurt some of my feelings. But when I actually dug underneath, I was like, oh no, actually the loss that I really fear is the loss of some self-image I have of being competent and not always doing the right thing, right? So it, it takes some work, work to name it. And then the other thing that naming does for us is it actually allows us to establish some differentiation. So when we name something, we're saying, this is something that is not me. This, this has a different name. It's not me, right? Mm -hmm. So um, this is why we name our, our kids when they're born and they emerge out of our own bodies. If you're a woman, uh, they're not no longer part of you. They're, they're another. Uh, and so we name them to mark the fact that they are other. Why this is so powerful in anxiety is because when we don't name and recognize our anxiety, uh, it can have this um, power of actually... Um, hijacking us so much that we fuse our identities with us. We we become our anxious thoughts. Like we're ruminating so much that like our anxious thoughts are us, right? Rather than thinking, oh wait, this is something I'm thinking, It's but it's not me in entirety. We become our anxious thoughts. And so what naming does is say, no, no, that's not me. That's a thought I'm having. And once I name it and external and say, this is not me, then Perhaps we are then invited to exer actually exercise some authority over it, uh, which that authority is not, I will make it disappear, but I can say, I'm going to tune into it more or I'm going to tune into it less. I can turn up the volume or I can turn down the volume on this. Uh, and so my book talks about all the ways in which when we name, we go through this process of you know, facing it, recognizing what it is, differentiating it from, from us, and then exercising some a meaningful but not complete authority over it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I got another uh, question or two, depending on how much time that we have, but I always love just giving people uh, just the opportunity. Is there anything that we haven't talked about, you know, regards to the book or anxiety or anything like that, that you want to make sure that we cover? Uh, I believe this has been a great conversation, Caleb. You've done your homework. Uh, so uh, there's a lot there more in the book. I invite yeah. folks to, to read about it. One of the things I really tried to do is include a lot of stories that I hope will people will be able to mm -hmm. identify their own experience uh, as their versions of it. Um, and then, yeah, the other thing I would just say is join the conversation that we're having both about anxiety and about anxiety in the world on the Good Faith podcast. Uh, it's a way for us to, to kind of continue to help each other make sense of both the, our own anxieties, but also kind of the anxieties in the world. So uh, yeah, I think the book and the podcast are two great opportunities for people to to continue this, this uh, opportunity for growth. Yeah. Well, one of the quotes that you have in the book is you say, the most life-changing truths are the ones that reshape not just our thinking, but also our imaginations. And I would just love to hear what's one of those things uh, that you've been thinking about or imagining recently. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about the resurrected body uh, because a lot of I have a lot of physical ailments uh, that can lead me to all sorts of anxiety, and I've really been meditating more on this. Again, it, we just have to, it's so it's so important for us to actually grasp the radicalness of the promise of the resurrection, which is we will get new bodies, new glorified bodies with that will not be subject. Uh, as Paul says, to death and decay, to pair to being to we will get imperishable bodies, is Paul's Paul's words for it, right? And so, um, 
it has, I've just been thinking a lot more about what will that be like? And how do I begin even now to act as if that is um, possibly, that's like, that's actually true, right? So, and one of the ways that that's true is that um, if that's true, it means that the things we do in our bodies now have a through line to our resurrected bodies that, that there's a, there's a, it's not this, it's not, you know, our resurrected will be different, but there will, but the, the things that we sow now that we invest in now in our physical bodies, we will reap with our glorified immortal bodies. So if you look over my, uh, people can't see this if they're just listening to it, but if you look over my shoulder, there's a piano in, in my, and I'm learning to play the piano right now. And the reason I'm doing that is because I want to sow for my glorified body uh, the ability, which I currently lack, to make music, you know, uh, and it's just, it's it's halting, it sounds terrible, it's awful, but it's like my way of enacting, you know what, this is not the end, this, my body right now is not the final story, I will have a resurrected glorified body, I will have all eternity to exercise that body, why not start now, like you said, and so, um, because normally, you know, I would be like, I don't have time. I don't have enough time in my life to um, to learn the piano. But like, no, I have eternity. I have an eternal body awaiting me. So why not get started now? Uh, so that's not exactly to do with anxiety, but it's it's one way that I'm trying to cultivate my imagination yeah. of the resurrection as a real thing in my life. Oh, I love that so much. <laughs> you know, just as we're wrapping up, you, you conclude the book, and I want to read this quote, and I would just love to have you elaborate more yeah. on it. Um, you write about Jesus and his time in the garden of Gethsemane. And you say the ultimate goal of Jesus was an anxiety reduction. It was to fulfill his calling. As we wrap up our conversation, would you mind just expounding more on that? Yeah. Again, I think this is the, this is the beauty of anxiety when we stop treating it as a problem to make go away and as something to go through, it actually frees us up for our calling. I think one of the main things that, that keeps us from our true calling is our our mental hands, if you will, are so busy trying to push away loss in our lives or to keep like ruminate and think it over and over and our turn over thoughts in our hands that, that our hands are not free to take hold of our calling. And, uh, and, and Jesus shows us the way that, you know, he did not, uh, he went through loss. And, and the funny thing about, I find so interesting about Jesus is, you know, in Gethsemane, um, he didn't, it wasn't like, there's no passage, there's no verse in Gethsemane. Well, first of all, in Gethsemane, right, it's clear Jesus is experiencing anxiety. That that, that All the passages describe Jesus as sorrowful, troubled, deep in sorrow, sweating almost blood even, how, how much in, in anguish he is. Um, but there's no passage in there that says, now Jesus having finally gotten rid of all of his anxiety, having finally achieved perfect peace, then proceeded to do his next thing. It was like, I think the scriptures seem to suggest Jesus was still feeling all of these things. But when the moment of calling arrived, when Judas arrived, you know, to betray him with and, and the loss that that, pro, that that brought with him, right? The loss of his friend, the loss of his life, the loss of so many of, of, of things. Um, Jesus was like, well, says to his disciples, come, let us be going. Let's go. Now's the time. Uh, because it's not, he did not take his cues from his own emotional state uh, as far as whether he was ready for his calling or not. Uh, so the point of his life was not, let me feel as least anxious as possible first, 
and then I'm ready for whatever. It was like, no, I'm re- I'm here to respond to God's calling and whatever level of anxiety I'm feeling now, I'm still okay. I'm still qualified. I'm still, I'm still equipped. Um, and that's my message to, to our, our, my readers and my listeners is mm-hmm. it's not like we get our act together, quote unquote, and we are all, you know, achieve some sort of Zen like state where we are not, are no longer anxious. And then we pursue our calling. No, we pursue our calling through our anxiety in our anxiety. Well, Curtis, I know that people are going to want to pick up your book, The Anxiety Opportunity, and keep up with you on Good Faith and Redeeming Babel. Where's the best place for people to go to get the book? And wherever, yeah, you? wherever you want, uh, Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, wherever you get your book, uh, uh, it's available. And then you can certainly on and on Apple Podcasts or whatever your streaming platform is, look up Good Faith Podcasts. Uh, and uh, Good Faith Podcast with Curtis Chang and would love to continue uh, the conversation with everyone. Great. Well, thanks so much for being on the podcast today and just thanks for doing the work and for sharing it with us. Caleb, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. I think coming out of that conversation, and really off of reading the book there's a couple of things that have really one one that has got me thinking one of that has really moved me the first is the idea of naming that we talked about at the end and and recognizing your anxiety and recognizing how your anxiety is showing up you know curtis talked about it of the the consultant dad of just naming these these different behaviors or these different things that appear and just recognizing when it's showing up oh i'm i'm being the i'm being the anxious husband oh i'm being the concerned friend oh i'm being the fill in the blank with whatever it is but recognizing that that is the thing that you are doing, recognize that that is the the role that you are living out right now and that your anxiety is living out. And I think the the last two things, which are both, both inspiring and uh, challenging, is what we talked about with that we gain back, that, that our losses are restored in that. And it's just led me to just ask the question, okay, so if things are going to be restored in heaven, then why wait? Why not try to bring that reality down here? Whether that be in in, in, in the one that I think about the most is just relational conflicts. Is if if you're going to be reconciled, if you're going, if the relationship is going to be restored, then why wait? Why wait until heaven? Why not continue to do that? And while at the same time, it just wrestles with, okay, but what if the person makes you anxious? What if it's a difficult thing? And so that's one of the things that I'm thinking about from this. And then the other thing is not to wait until you feel ready. Not wait until you feel not anxious, but to go forth in whatever your calling is. To not let fear stop you, to not let anxiety stop you. And of course, there's wisdom 
in that, but I don't think that, well, I was going to say that I don't think that many of us struggle with not doing something I think we struggle with, with actually starting something, but I, both are, both are very true. It just depends on the context. Sometimes the thing that we need to do is to stop. And sometimes the thing that we need to do is to start. And so those are some of the things that I'm thinking about. You know, you can continue to learn from me and some of the things that I'm thinking about by subscribing to my Substack, where I just give bunches of recommendations for the different things that I'm currently learning about. And so that's all that I have for today. I do want to say thank you to Sam Massey for providing the music for this podcast. Thank you to Curtis for being on the podcast and for the wonderful conversation. And thank you for listening all the way to the end of the episode. My name is Caleb Mason. And until next time, keep learning and keep growing.